thrills never stop as Agent 007 goes above the call of duty and to the bottom of the ocean to track down a villainous criminal who's holding millions hostage and threatening to plunge the world into a nuclear holocaust. Making its premiere on the 9th of December 1965 in Tokyo, Japan, and opening in the USA and UK on the 21st and 29th of December 1965, respectively, Thunderball is the fourth James Bond film, costing $5.6 million to make, which brought in $141.2 million at the Worldwide Box Office. Starring Sean Connery and directed by Terence Young, the vital statistics are Conquests 3, Martini 0, Kills 22, Bond James Bonds 0. Back in 1965, Variety said, Sean Connery plays his indestructible James Bond for the fourth time in The Manor Born, faced here with a $280 million atomic bomb ransom plot. Action, the dominating element of the three predecessors, gets rougher before and even before the credits flash on. Richard Maybaum and John Hopkins' screenplay is studded with inventive play and mechanical gimmicks. There's visible evidence that the reported $5 million budget was no mere publicity figure. It's posh all the way. So this week to discuss Thunderball, we have Calvin Dyson, Bill Koenig, and Joe Darlington. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel under that name where I uh, review and discuss all things James Bond. And I'm Bill Koenig, and I uh, run the uh, Spy Command blog, and I actually saw this movie not quite first run, but like in the spring of 66, and it affected my childhood. So there you go. I am Joe Darlington. I do uh, a channel called Being James Bond, and even though I've been a little quiet lately, I'm still very much a Bond fanatic and uh, very excited to be here, and then also a big fan of Thunderball, so uh, glad to be with you guys. Awesome. So our first category is the one with um, what is quickly the motif that you can hang your hat on for this, uh, for this film, whether it's a minimalist poster idea or if you close your eyes, the one thing you see or the one thing you hear when you think of Thunderball. So Thunderball is the one with... Can I go first on this? Does anyone mind? Yeah. I want to get, the, ob- I wanna, I wanna get the obvious one out of the way. Water. This is the one with water. <laughs> lots and lots of water. Underwater stuff. Aqu- aquatic life. Uh, harpoon guns. Every shot is by the sea or a pool or something like that. I just Whenever I think of Thunderball, I think of Connery in the wetsuit. I think of characters in and around water constantly. It is the one with the jetpack. With Calvin was great, but the jetpack as a not quite eight year old, that bowled me over. And the thing is, like, Eon has like flirted with bringing the jetpack multiple times uh-huh. in the first in the first draft of of uh, Moonraker and the first draft of the World Is Not Enough, and of course in the die another day which in the latter was like you know a, a you know a joke but uh you know that I, I have to tell you as as someone that young as a kid boy that just bowled me over and just like whoa that's just that's not something you could get on tv at the time and you know i'll, I'll leave it at that and uh, okay. just on the jetpack, uh, I would be remiss to not mention a James Bond mm-hmm. game on one of these podcasts, uh, but the jetpack did make a reappearance in the From Russia With Love video game, which was sort of cherry-picking elements from Connery's films and uh, throwing them into the gameplay. And some of the best levels in that game were flying yes. around on that jetpack. It was so much fun in that game. And that's the one James Bond uh, computer game I have. 
but I, <laughs> but I was so terrible at it. I couldn't go too much beyond that. But yeah, absolutely. Great point. Um, Calvin kind of definitely grabbed the one that I was thinking of. I mean, I kind of feel like, like you said, it was the low hanging fruit. It was the water. And, and that's all I could think of because I keep this will always to me be the one that's just everything is underwater. Um, so I'll kind of do sort of a cheat and and I'll go with I'll, I'll just say the Bahamas. And I think um, this to me is mm. the film that's even though this is probably like a, the, the beginning portion uh, takes place in England. To me, this is the one that is the Bahamas. And it's even though they've kind of since returned to the Bahamas, I feel like Casino Royale is really, for the most part, that one is is in and around the Ocean Club. Uh, so it's not the big. Um, and even though they filmed a little bit over at the Albany House, if you if you ask somebody, they'd probably just assume that they shot it all in the same place because it looks all very familiar. Um, this one to me is all mm. around the Bahamas. And I think that's terrific. It's it's underwater. It's it's, you know, in locations that are near the water, uh, but it's also downtown. You get the Junkanoo. Uh, you you get a lot. I, I kind of feel like this is you really do get a good dose of the Bahamas. And if you if you sort of there's a few Bond films that you can associate with locations. And I feel that that's what Thunderball does. It's, it really to me is a it really showcases and highlights the Bahamas. That's a good shout. Absolutely. And that's one of the critiques we've had. I think of some more of the recent films is not having that kind of feeling that you've visited there, even though you've only seen it on the screen, which you got with the early ones. Exactly right. Big, big time. All right. So this is the meaty uh, section, the Bond cocktail. Um, often Bond films are described as having a formula. And so here are some of the categories of that formula. We've got the teaser, the titles, the plot, the women, the villains, the allies, Bond himself, action, locations, dialogue, and style. Which of those ingredients of the Bond cocktail would you like to pick out um, as being particularly distinct for this film or important for this film compared to the rest of the series? And that can be a, a positive thing or a negative thing. And who would like mm -hmm. to pick one um, to throw in the shaker? Can I go? Yep. Um, this actually piggybacks on what I just said about the jetpack. The um, The teaser, it was like at the time this movie came out, there were like all these uh, spy TV shows, both on the U.S. side of the Atlantic and the Atlantic, uh, U.K. side. And like, you know, Thunderball gave people what they could not get on TV. And that thing with the um, jetpack, I, I am like really, I, I, am, I have to admit, this is the first Bond film I saw. And like, I'm still like all these years later, decades later, I'm still emotionally attached to that jetpack. And that, you know, they actually, you know, Eon has flirted at least twice with, um, uh, you know, the pre titles, you know, the first uh, draft script of Moonraker and the um, uh, first draft script of The World Is Not Enough. They like flirted with putting the jetpack in. They did not go that way in, you know, die another day. They did put the jetpack in as a joke, but it's not the same. And it's just, and personally, I think by not putting it in, in those movies, I think that was the right move because it was like a one time really special thing. So, you know, that's it for me. So they didn't DB5ify the jetpack. 
by absolutely no sticking it, it in did every not. movie. Yeah, keeps it special. Okay, Calvin Joe, who wants to throw one of those categories in as particularly positive or particularly negative about this film? Okay, well, I, I guess maybe I'll go with a slightly negative one here then, uh, just on style, uh, because uh, I, I listened to the previous Ooh, episode where, where you talked about, well, th- there's two aspects to this. Uh, I heard on um, the From Russia With Love episode, uh, Sean took this and sort of uh, uh, took it to apply to visual style, and I, I'm sort of going to do the same here in the sense that this feels to me like it's kind of the ultimate of the Terence Young Peter Hunt collaborations where I feel like it's full of that kind of jump cuts like sped up uh, like over cranking the camera kind of edits uh I, I feel like in this one it really goes wild and it, that might be for various reasons uh whether the script wasn't completely there on set or whatever I think there are numerous continuity errors and the like in in this one um, th- this is the one that's kind of most heinous for that, for me, uh, particularly in that whole climax sequence where they're on the disco volante and having the fight mm. and it's the back projection outside going wild while the camera's being overcranked and it's jump cuts and it's just kind of everything in that scene. Um, it, it yes, th- this, I- I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that and here it feels like it's turned up to 11 uh, and it's one of the reasons why this isn't one of my highest ranking bond films um but just on the flip side of style to take that as you know the 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 style of the characters the clothes the accessories all that kind of stuff like i'm not much of a bond lifestyle certainly not a bond lifestyle expert i I can't really articulate uh, these things very well but this is one that i look at and i think like good god everyone is so stylish in this and i wish i had all of these shirts and sunglasses and whatnot because i think it's just i think everyone in this film just looks absolutely stunning and maybe that's because they were filming in the bahamas and yeah if, if the behind the scenes is to believe there was like champagne on set and it seemed like everyone was having a really good time and i think that shows everyone looks really healthy and uh, you know uh in good shape and whatnot. Um, so, so on the on the flip side of style, I, I do like that aspect of it. I think it is a very aesthetically pleasing film from that regard. Calvin, you realize you 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 are critiquing Academy Award winning special effects. That's <laughs> a joke. That's a joke. But <laughs> no, it's true. Right. I I forget I I forget that this one has a yeah a special uh, a special effects Oscar. In fact, wasn't it like a a special? It wasn't even a category at that point. It was like a special recognition thing, or was it, it a category? No, no, it was it was a category, but there were only ah. like two movies nominated, and this was mm-hmm. one of the two, and they were both United Artists releases. <laughs> but uh, I'll get I'll get into that later when uh, under uh, later. But yeah, to your point about visual style and filmmaking, Calvin, I, I think the um, the crime against Bond on uh, on this one is the the horizontal wipes mm. on the scenes. Oh right, right, um, right. Never they're not in any other Bond movie, and it yeah. was like, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> well, yeah. well, I think part of it was because uh, Terrence Young had to like was getting out early. And so, like Peter Hunt was kind of like stuck, trying to do, th- trying to finish the movie on his own. Mm. Um, it, there was two point coming. There's a lot of decisions, um, creative decisions on the mechanics of the filmmaking, which are unique to Thunderball. Mm. Yeah, and we don't see them post Thunderball; they disappear. Yeah, 
That's very true. I never even really uh, acknowledged the whole thing about the screen wipes before, but yeah, that's totally true. This is the only one to have those kinds of edits, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I forget there was like public, one, public access television kind of stuff that is. Well, there, there's like one wipe where it goes from the bottom of the screen to the top and it's like black for like a second or two and then it comes down. Hmm. And and that's like really weird. But I, I it, that may be due to the whole, you know, Terrence Young's abrupt exit from the project. Um, I, I'm going to go with the plot and I, because I think the um, you know one of one of my favorite things about Thunderball is probably I I kind of feel like the plot gets really overlooked because you know the Thunderball plot is sort of that plot that is sort of you know it's become such a Bond staple that it's been parodied like Austin Powers parodies the hell out of this one you know we're just going to steal a couple of warheads and do what we always do um, so. <laughs> And I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, this one is the one that kind of cements like they, they, they don't go back too often after this. And when I say go back, like once the stakes have become sort of, you know, the, the world is at stake. You know, he's going to somebody's gonna, some a madman is going to launch nuclear warheads unless Bond cracks the case. You know, once they sort of hit those heights, you know, the, I mean, the first one's were espionage plots they were you know bad things could happen but you know not earth shaking um once we get the thunderball it you you feel like oh wow like my life is at stake so uh yeah i i think i think the plot to me is you know pretty i'll, I'll even say kind of revolutionary in a way um you know it's a great bond plot and and of course it still keeps that you know well what's bond's role in this well, he has to seduce women and he has to one up the the main baddie, you know, like that. You know, we, we've kind of seen that already, but you sort of throw in the big, you know, world zit stake plot. Um, I kind of feel like you, now you sort of you've, you've got the whole Bond cocktail all wrapped up in one. Um, so, yeah, for me, I, I think the, the plot is uh, kind of underrated, frankly. I think you're right. From like a stakes perspective, especially, it's like it, it is the first. One. I was just thinking then about. I guess Doctor No has kind of high stakes, but this is the one, the first one where you really feel it. I don't know if it's to do with like we have like shots of briefing rooms and stuff, and all of these dignitaries gathered around trying to figure stuff out. It, it feels much bigger than Doctor No, where I feel like we only ever really experience the stakes through the like the TV screens that we see in Crab Key and whatnot. Uh, this one does have a much broader scope to it yeah you know th there there are all these shots there are not a lot of them but you know all these shots back in london while bond's off in the bahamas investigating things you you would cut back to uh london and uh you would see these little screens like you know canada nothing reported this country nothing reported i mean that they're like little shots way in the background but like yeah, it was like this, you had this uh, feeling of this worldwide crisis. Yeah, I remember when we did the watch along, that was the first time I'd really dialed into that, Bill. That, that, that map they had specially built on that set just for that one, like, two-second shot. <laughs> it felt like being on there. Um, <laughs> about the plot, I, I, the, the plot, I think, is great as you say, Joe, because it, it raises the stakes and it, there's the ticking time bomb aspect of it and the ransom inspector and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we should point out here how much of that was actually Ian Fleming's idea is open to debate, right? Right, right. But 
I think my problem with it is the thing that drags it down for me is the actual scripting because the audience is always ahead of Bond in this film. You, you see the twists and turns coming before Bond and Bond's reacting to things that you already know. Um, and I think in the series as a standout, I think Thunderball is the one where the audience is ahead of Bond the whole time. Well, mm. well, also for Marshall with Love as well, because me, I, I think there's a few that go back and forth. But- well, I was about to say, like uh, Sam Mendes said, like, oh, the audience should never be ahead of Bond. Like, well, actually, there's a number of Bond films where the audience is ahead of Bond, and from Marshall with Love is one, Thunderball is another. And just FYI. Yeah. I think A View to a Kill is a, is a big one. Yes. All righty. Switching text to underappreciated element. Um, what thing, big or very, very small, would you like to bring to people's attention so that the next time they watch it, they can look out for? Um, can I go on this one? Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do with the uh, the crew that actually brought the underwater scenes to life. And the main guy, well, the, the head guy for that was Ivan Tours. His company was hired to do the underwater sequences. And then you had... Uh, Raku Browning do the underwater. He was the underwater director. Uh, you had, uh, you know, a couple other guys all, who all got credits in the main titles. And uh, when John Steers got his Oscar for the special effects, Ivan Torres, you know, Steers was not there for the for the award. So like uh, Torres, like went up and accepted it on his behalf, and he. You know, like he, you know, he, he made a point of mentioning all of his guys. And like one of them, one of those guys was uh, a guy named Jordan Klein, who was the underwater engineer. And uh, he was a like a he was a really interesting character because his hobby was uh, hunting sharks while while ski, while water skiing. So I get, you know, <laughs> so he was on like one ski and like he held on with one hand and had a harpoon on the other, and he like you know used the harpoon to get the sharks, and then uh, God, Lamar, <laughs> yeah, and That's Lamar Bourne. It is insane. It is insane. I stumbled on this. Just imagine him wearing an eye patch or something. Yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> it, it's amazing. And and uh, Lamar Bourne was the underwater cameraman, and his wife was the uh, was one of the uh, underwater stunt people and of course she must have been uh, doubling uh, Claudine Auger because you know Domino was the only character who you saw underwater and uh, no I forget the oh and Riku, Riku Browning he played the uh, um, oh god what was it the uh, the Gill Man Gil- in the Creature Gilman. from the Black yes. Lagoon yeah. yes. you stole in my yeah. trivia there Bill I was saving that for the <laughs> trivia round I, I, I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm, I apologize about <laughs> oh, that no, no, but, no, like, but like but but uh, um, Ivan Tours he had he had produced TV shows and movies that had like a lot of underwater filming um, one of his one of his movies was called uh uh Around the World Under the Sea with uh, uh, Shirley Eaton was one of the cast members. And, uh, yeah, anyway, my whole point in bringing this up is, like, t- 
to do this movie, you needed a lot of expertise, and Ivan Torres had that expertise. And you know, Bond fans pretty much don't remember him or never knew about him. Right. But you know, that's why I'm bringing he, it up. He's kind of been written out of the official history of this movie. Like the impact that those guys had has been diminished a bit in the official yeah. storytelling of this film and how it's produced. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, other thing I'd like to point out in the back of what you said, Bill, is um, shout out to Ken Adam for designing all the underwater vehicles that did not exist. Like those things didn't exist. And I think fans watching that movie today kind of take it for granted. Oh yeah, it's an underwater vehicle for two divers. It's like, yeah, those things were they were invented for this film. Yes, because um, the 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 first making of featurette was done in 1995 for the 30th anniversary, uh, and. Um, you know, a mutual friend of ours was involved in producing that. And yeah, and, and Ken Adam is interviewed in that featurette. And he said, this is the first time, like, oh, I could draw something and like, you can make it. Oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. And, you know, just it's, yeah, exactly. It, it was like, even Ken Adam did not know that his designs could be made practical. Right. And that happened with this film. Good chat, Bill. Um, Calvin, underappreciated element. Um, it might not be an underappreciated element necessarily, but I do want to shine a bit of a light on Blofeld in this one. I think this might be my favorite, at least, uh, Blofeld representation in the entire series, even though he is just in the one scene. Uh, I think the the combination of Anthony Dawson's physicality and the Eric Pullman voice, the cat not seeing his face, the Spectre boardroom, like that whole thing is so classically Spectre. Uh, even though I know that we'd already seen this version of Blofeld in From Russia with Love, I feel like they really perfected it here. And I think that Blofeld is uh, his best when he is uh, this unseen force mm. kind of pulling the strings. Uh, but he is just this really imposing, mysterious, and intriguing character in this one. Um, and as I say, he is only in it for the one film. He's just kind of there to set up some of the villain scheme, and then we're with Largo for the rest of the thing. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, maybe that Blofeld performance in this one is perhaps a bit underappreciated, because uh, it is more subtle compared to some of the others. Good show. Joe, underappreciated element. Um, first of all, I. I- Calvin, I want to just wholeheartedly agree with what you just said, and I, I, I think you you were spot on when you said, even though we we've kind of seen this touched on already in From Russia with Love, it's it's really perfected here, and I and I think this is probably you're probably right. This is kind of the perfect Blofeld that we've ever really seen. Um, I'm gonna go ahead, and I know Bill sort of already touched on the underwater uh, photography and and all the efforts that we put in there. I I kind of want to piggyback off that and because again i i I know that it all the underwater stuff i know it it always gets mixed reactions at best probably from from fans uh but i i i really sort of adore a lot of this underwater stuff and uh, and uh, and one of the scenes in particular that really sort of jumps out at me and stays with me is the part when bond and domino first meet and the fact that they're first meeting underwater. And I think, you know, th- th- there's a lot of times o- over the years being a hardcore Bond fan, y- I think you sort of go through stages. And I and I certainly went through a stage 
right? I was really pushing the idea that everything Fleming should be should be left alone. The more Fleming you see in a Bond film, the better the film is going to be, and you shouldn't tinker with with Fleming at all. And then I I feel like I kind of graduated a little bit to the point where I I really started to take notice on so many of the things that filmmakers had done to improve upon Fleming. And I, I think this is a perfect example of that because I, you know, when Bond and Domino meet in the novel, it's fine. You know, there it's, and again, the books are supposed to do things. They, they serve different purposes. You're supposed to have a different feeling reading than you do from watching something on the big screen. And, you know, when, when Bond and Domino meet in the novel, it's fine. They're on the streets of Nassau. He, Bond strikes up a conversation. He, he tries to be interesting, and, and that, that's all she wrote. Here, when they meet underwater, you know, she, they're, they're snorkeling under the beautiful Bahamian waters, and she gets her, her, her fin caught in the coral. Bond comes in to sort of rescue her. Uh, they have kind of a moment. They go up to the surface. I think that is spectacular. Like the fact that the, that this, that the whole, that, that not only the scene opens up, but the whole location, the whole Bahama location opens underwater to me, I think is, is so that to me is just, what is it? Chef's kiss. Mwah. Like I just absolutely adore that. I think that is so well done. It's it, the photography is gorgeous. And and again, just the fact that we're already underwater kind of puts us in in a, in a certain frame of mind, you know, that we're kind of already in a dream, you know. And then when they 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 come to the surface and start talking, we we're, we're in, in a way we're kind of waking up from a dream. Uh, so th- yeah, that one I th- I think it's a very underrated moment. All right, trivia. Who, do you want to go first, Emma? Yes, uh, two uh, two cameos, uh, Kevin McClory. Uh, in the scene where Bond first enters the uh, Nassau Casino. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. I always forget about yeah, that. But yeah. Yeah, Ke- yeah. Kevin McClory is like sitting in the uh, foreground while Bond is in the background. And then, um, oh, um, oh, also Charles Ruchon. He was, right. the, he was Eon's Mr. Fix-It. And he had, you know, there was this in-joke in Goldfinger where it says, Welcome, General Rushan. He was a retired uh, colonel in the U.S. military, but he has a he has a scene or two, you know, back in London, where like you know, again the you know the headquarters, like all this, you know, there are all these you know agents spread around the you know the world, and I think he's in like maybe two scenes. I mean, he doesn't have a dialogue, and he's in the background, but he's like talking to Money Penny and. Uh, and and Rushan, you know, got he basically got a lot of um, military hardware, in particular the uh, explosive that was used to blow up the boat. And John Steer said later in the in the uh, uh, making of uh, featurette that uh, Steers did not know how potent that explosive was, and they you know blew up. <laughs> And and it turned out, you know, it blew out all the windows in Bay Street, thirty miles away, and so um, you know. So anyway, those two uh, uh, cameos are of interest to Bond fans, or should be. He also I'll he also arranged yeah. for the skyhook to end the movie, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Calvin. Um, we've already heard what your first choice was going to be. So what was your second backup? <laughs> 
Uh, well, my backup was that I, I find this kind of interesting. There's like a little feature on most of the home media releases about this. Some of the changed lines that appeared in various different versions, mm. like there is a, you know, Connery's line um, when he hops out of the shark tank. He says to the sharks, uh, "Either sorry, old chap, better look next time," or, "Well, you can tell them about the one that got away." And I just I find that kind of thing interesting. I assume it was because different prints were already sent out um, before they had like final tweakings and whatnot. But there's like lines like that. I I just find kind of interesting that there were even alternative options available, really, for the filmmakers. And I guess someone decided, oh no, we need to put the 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 other one back in or get that redubbed. But by by that point, they'd already sent out some of the prints. But these things do exist out there in in different releases and soundtracks and whatnot. So I I find that kind of interesting. Well, um, I have to defer to James on this. There's the uh, Doctor Who uh, reference. Reference. Yeah. Uh, But you you go ahead, James. um, (laughs) When Bond goes in to see Moneypenny, when Moneypenny calls him in in a hurry and uh, he's wondering what all the flap's about, and in the film, he says somebody must have lost their dog, but the original line was something like, "Have the Daleks invaded?" <laughs> because ah, it was that it was been interesting. It was peak Doctor Who Dalek stuff in the mid '60s, and um, we went through the production history of the film and found that when they were writing mm-hmm. the screenplay and the final draft was the same weeks that that the the peak Dalek Doctor Who story was on UK TV. So it was huh. all around pop culture at the time they were writing the final draft. And that's where the joke got put into the script. And then in, in post, they dubbed it out. Because obviously, yeah. obviously, all the UA people were like, what, who the fuck are the Daleks? Um, right. And they, they had to make a better, well, a more inter- international joke. All right, so. Because I have that script. And James and I talked about this briefly and, you know, months and months ago. But yeah, it it said Daleks. Like I have to admit, the first time I read it, like, what's this? And like, I guess I'm an American. I didn't know what Doctor Who was. And uh, James contacted me. So, uh, oh, yeah. oh, and we oh did my. a little video on YouTube about it. But if you watch that scene, he actually you can kind of lip read him saying the line, and um, the overdub is is pretty clumsy on it. Huh. Joe, what little bit of tidbit of unknown or rarely heard trivia have you got for us? Um, well, since uh, I'll, all my colleagues are a little too classy to, to mention this one, but this one's kind of my favorite, but I'm going to go with the peeing dog um, <laughs> at the Junkanoo scene. I, I know I'm going to mangle this story, so I'm going to let uh, Bill or anybody else jump in and probably fix it for me. Um, the way I heard it was there's a scene in the Junkanoo where there's a there's a just one quick scene. Um, it's kind of a wide shot and there's a dog in the middle of the frame. And the dog decides to squat right in the middle of, of the scene. And the way I heard the story was that uh, in, in one of the first first time they, they had seen one of the first edits, <laughs> Cubby Broccoli like laughed and thought and said something like, oh, my God, there's a dog right in the middle of whatever. And everybody had a laugh. And the, and the editor was kind of mortified. So in the second pass, of course, the dog was taken out. And then but I. Cubby said, "Hey, where's 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 my dog? Where's the dog in the middle of the frame?" Apparently, he thought this was hysterical, so they popped it back in, and there he is in the final shot. If you watch that scene, you can see a dog, and it's right in the middle of the of the of the scene, he pops a squat. So, yeah, kind of the the fact that Cubby laughed and and it ended up going back in, I think, is hysterical. 
Well, and also in the same shot, in the background, there are all these locals who have hats on that say <laughs> 007 on the top. I mean, it's not just one or two. It's like 20 or 30. And like, I, but I have to admit, I did not discover this until 1991 <laughs> when they started doing uh, uh, James Bond marathons on American television. I thought, wait, what? How did I miss this all these years? But there it was. <laughs> that was always Peter Hunt's defense, right? Because he didn't catch it in the cinema, so didn't care. Hmm. Um, let's wrap up this one then. Um, so for final verdict, um, not going to ask anybody to rank numerically their films, but what we're going to ask is, is Thunderball in the top tier, middle tier, or lower tier of your Bond fandom, and why? Uh, well, for me, I guess I'll go first. Uh, it is in the bottom tier of the uh, of the bunch for me. Uh, one of the main reasons for that is I think we've covered on uh, a couple of the reasons, really. Uh, James, what you brought up earlier on about the um, the plot, like, I, I, I think it, it that, that aspect of it never really worked for me that we see so much so early on and then bond is kind of hanging out in the bahamas trying to sort of catch up with what the villains are doing i guess it uh it 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 is more of a hangout kind of movie than a lot of bond films are where he's going from a to b to c to d and hopping around different countries as he goes here he's sort of in the one place trying to find out the thing that we already kind of know that being said i think that the stakes are very impressive and uh, and grand, which works really nicely. I do also connect a lot with the travel log aspects of this. Just to go back to what Joe was saying earlier on about some of the locations and how how beautiful it is, and certainly the underwater photography it is stunning as well. Like this is one that I watch and I can just sort of bask in how wonderful the scenery is and the time capsule nature of it as well. Like seeing just this place in time. Um, so I I do tend to get more and more out of it as time goes by in that respect and i think that connery is fairly fantastic in this as well um but despite that it, it still ends up in the in, in the bottom tier for me there's just so many more bond films that i prefer all righty bill i think we know the answer but go for it uh well top tier i i can't I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, you know, I was seven going on eight when I saw this movie and it just opened up a whole new, <laughs> a whole new thing for me. It's just like, oh my God, like you, know, you could not get anything like this on television at that time. And also, since we're doing this in connection with uh, the Bond films being re-released in uh, theaters in the UK, this movie, I think, in particular, is like really best viewed on a widescreen in a theater. So that's how I saw mm. it. Like at, in a drive-in, which is how I saw it the first time. I mean, those screens were giant. Now, the sound systems weren't great because you had this little tinny little thing you put on your <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on your uh, window, you know, your car window. But uh, no, it it it. it Thunderball changed my life. I'll put it that way. So top tier for me. Awesome. All right, Joe. Top, middle, or bottom? Okay. Um, for me, it's it's definitely a top tier. In fact, I, I think one point, like when I was much younger and kind of just starting to explore some of the older Bond films, I think there's probably a, a while there when I, I would have even called this my favorite. Um, 
and and I think probably to what Bill is saying, I I felt like, and again, it's not like I grew up in a time. I mean, this this was sort of like past Star Wars. It's not like it. I wasn't living in an era where, you know, I couldn't see big films. Uh, so it wasn't like it was something I never saw before. But it it did sort of start, have that element for me that this is you know a part of the world that I would love to go visit and. Um, you know, explore and it, and it, it it did sort of feel pretty exciting for me. Uh, so yeah, I, I and today I still look at this as easily a top tier Bond film. Um, I I can certainly see why it doesn't gel for a lot of fans. There are moments where it's a little slow moving. Um, maybe the plot is is not quite there for a lot of people. But you know, for me, it it definitely checks an awful lot of boxes. Um, in terms of uh location plot uh style uh probably some i I, you know there are certain elements that are kind of they work pretty well but maybe aren't quite the grand slam like i feel like the villain in this largo i feel like he's a perfect villain on paper but i could see why he wouldn't you know he certainly doesn't have the gravitas that a lot of others villains might have um but yeah, all in all, I, I definitely this film has so many of the elements that I do really enjoy. I, I think it's probably Connery's best. I think um, I would say, you know, I, I I think he's doing a lot more here than, for example, in Goldfinger, where I kind of feel like he's a passive player. Uh, you know, he seems to be very much on his game in his element. Uh, so yeah, I think for me, it's definitely one of the better ones. It's my favorite Connery, uh, of the bunch. I think maybe, uh, from Russia with love would be a close second, but, uh, yeah, so de- definitely upper tier for me. Good stuff. So if you, if, if you're in the UK uh, this weekend, um, early May, and, uh, you're lucky enough to li- uh, live near a theater that's showing Thunderbolt back on the big screen again in 4k, no less, um, really personally recommend it because Thunderbolt to me was one of those middling Bond films when I was younger uh, you know because the pace mostly as you mentioned Joe but um, we host we co-hosted the 40th anniversary in the UK uh, a long time ago now Um, and we put it up on the big screen and a lot of people that came to that it changed their opinion of the film seeing it on the big screen having never seen it up Mm. there before Um, so I think it's definitely one of those like um You've got to experience it the way it was meant to be seen, and it really changes the view on films. I think it's one of those Bond films that's up there with that big screen experience that can't really be replicated. So um, email us and tell me I'm wrong um, when you go and see it. <laughs> if your opinion doesn't change, that's fine too. Um, so with that, thank you, Bill, Calvin, and Joe, and we'll catch you on the next one. 